Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Pia Andrews. Pia is a serial public sector transformer and open government open data specialist who uses a background in tech and policy to affect change in the public sector and create better outcomes for our global society. Join us as we talk about tech, public policy, and Pia's dream of an optimistic future. Welcome, Pia. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm so delighted to have you on today speaking with me about open data policies and government. Thanks so much for having me. It's just a delight. Thank you. So, you know, so much of your career has been involved in the digital commons and open source type spaces, but what drew you to the area? That's so interesting. My background is my mum was a techie. So I grew up with computers in the early 80s um, and um, at a time when most of my peers didn't have computers so um, so I saw those you know very early things my dad was a salesperson my mum was a techie so I sort of grew up with computers grew up with a, a reasonable amount of technical skill and nuance and as like a lot of kids did that had um, parents in the sector but I never saw it as the thing I wanted to do I saw it as a as a um, you know just a skill to have so I actually, when I left school, I wanted to do pretty much anything else. So I tried a couple of different um, areas. I went on a avid truth for, you know, search for truth, which led me <laughs> to a few different things, including physics. Of course, it wasn't to be found anywhere. <laughs> and um, the short version is that I started working in the tech sector for an ISP, uh, just in tech support, kind of as a backup, as a, oh, well, I'll do this till I figure out what I want to do. And then I discovered open source. And I found this fabulous world where, my values and my skills aligned. And I, I discovered a couple of interesting things. And the first one that I discovered was that um, people really are shaped by the tools they use. Your quality of life, your connections to people, your, frankly, your freedoms are actually heavily shaped by the tech that you use. And we could see this you know, yes. in, in the 90s even. And so I started to feel a real sense of personal responsibility that if I have skills if i'm if i'm a techie then i i i feel a personal obligation to use those skills to make to help make the world a better place not to just allow the vacuum to be filled by people who are happy to use those skills to make it a worse place so yes. i've sort of for the last 20 years i've i've really felt an obligation to be a um ethical uh technologist and ethical hacker um and to make the systems better for humans and better for society and better for communities that's amazing. So you did start out like in the tech side more than the policy side to begin with. Well, and it's funny because tech and policy. So, yeah, I, I spent the first 10 years in the tech sector, um, started just in tech support, sysadmin, solution architecture, sort of worked my way through a few different areas. Um, and as and in my that was my day job in my night, <laughs> I was uh, getting very, very involved in um, the open source community in Linux Australia, in um, various different uh, Linux user groups. And, uh, and got into advocacy. And so yes. I started, um, you know, advocating around not just open source, but around uh, things like the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement, where we made a, um, a bit of a coalition with us, the creative sector and the pharmaceutical sector about the negative impact it was later proven to have for, for our sectors. And through that, I uh, ended up going to troll, as I was trying to do the, um, the shadow ICT minister, who at the time was Kate Lundy, mm -hmm. But she gave this amazing speech about how it was going to be really bad for the sector. I'm like, oh, 
well, that's what I was going to say, but yay. So, um, so we, <laughs> we connected and I was very impressed with her. And then um, she actually poached me to come and work for her. So I had the only reason that I wanted to work in government, in political government, I have no interest in politics. I find politics gets in the way of democracy quite often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to understand that system because I'm still a sysadmin at heart, really. So understanding yeah. how, and, and because I'd been advocating government and um, from the outside, I wanted to see how it worked on the inside. So working for mm. three years in, a in her office and understanding how politics works then gave me, um, and continuing with sort of my studies under her uh, while I was there in, um, in the history of, of our um, democratic systems in Australia, it was only working for her that I realised how critical the public sector is. And when your public service, particularly in a Westminster-based and, um, and socially libertarian country like Australia or New Zealand or Canada, um, in, in our countries, the public sector is the stabiliser. And I started to realise if the public sector is working well, it's a, it's a platform for people to thrive. When it's working badly, it affects negatively everybody. So, um, so that's mm -hmm. when I got my passion for the public sector. So I, I work in public sector. I work in, um, in trying to actually close the divide between implementation and policy. And, um, and in fact, bringing some of these methods into policy as well as working in really good uh, tech. In fact, I like to have policy designers and tech working side by side in the same team uh, to develop policy, yes. implementation, governance, you know, um, services. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm one of these people who's dabbled in a lot of areas. Have I have deep expertise in a few, but I'm more now expert in building um, systems and teams and structures and functions that are fit for purpose in the 21st century. How does your experience with the open source and digital commons community integrate with what you need to do to develop policy for governance? Oh, geez, that's a great question. So um, a couple of things. First of all, um, open source and you know, free and open source community methods provide a really good blueprint for how to work um, remotely, how to work on a common goal, but with lots of different skill sets, uh, how to um, get many eyes, makes all bugs shallow, right? Um, to actually ensure that um, the approach that we take in government is um is taking advantage of those many eyes is drawing on expertise and experience from across the sector and across the community not just the small number of people you have access to in your team so it gives a model for working in a more open way that actually leads to better outcomes measurably better outcomes um so the methods are critical the ethos is really critical as well you know really focusing not just on you know um focusing on what's good for people not just <laughs> what's you know um what's easy or what's quick but actually what's good is a is a really good um and and, and also focusing on you know uh, people having quality life and and um you know having uh, freedom in their in their personal and and professional kind of life is really important um but then of course beyond all of that just to get to the straight tech there's so much amazing technology in the open source sector um there's so much to build upon and of course with um, open source being the foundation of so much of the mobile age of so much of the cloud age of so much of you know modern successful companies um uh, you know have been built in open source and then older successful companies have adapted to and um and shifted to open source it it's a it's both a methodology and a technology commons that um you know any government that's that's smart would build upon right um so yeah so the, there's a few things there yes definitely and you know we've been seeing also just recently 
example, relatively recently, all these governments are starting to get into open data and you know, just trying to create more transparency in the way things are done. Uh, what sort of interesting kind of approaches or uses have you seen people coming up with now that they're having more access to all this kind of information? Um, open data is a funny thing because when you say we have to do open data because it's just good for the economy or just good for community, um, no one disagrees with that intent, but it's very hard to free up uh, the internal funds to make it a priority because departments are always under-resourced to do you know, mm -hmm. more and more work, work with less and less stuff. So what we, um, when, I was, when I was running DataGovAU and when I was in Department of Finance, we, um, we really focused and we had a very small team, but the reason we were able to be so successful with driving and, and elevating open data was because we started from a couple of key premises. It, are there business benefits? Like, are there actually benefits to the departments in open data, right? And we, went, we needed to be very honest and open about that. So we tested that hypothesis and we found, actually, yes, there are some specific benefits to departments in opening up data. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a sec. But then we needed to also test the premise of what is actually stopping them from doing open data today. So we went and looked at what are the actual barriers. And one of the key barriers back then was most departments didn't have the means or infrastructure or support to publish open data. They didn't have the platform to do it on. So for the really big departments, they're fine. But for you know most of the rest of the departments, they didn't have the means. So the first thing we did was just um, set up DataGovAU, not just as a catalog, but as a, a place, a repository. We made sure it was all API enabled. We made sure that departments could manage and handle their own, like could actually self-serve and could actually self-publish. So we created all of that self-service, you know, da open data as a service to all the departments. Mm -hmm. And then we worked with them around what's a business driven thing that will help you actually create an efficiency or create a business benefit, which then could bootstrap your open data program. And for mm -hmm. some of them, it was around, oh, well, we, we think that if we could get this data out, then it might actually save us some money because it's such a popular request we get. So if we could publish it proactively, then that will actually uh, save on calls or save on requests or whatever. For some of them, it was, you know, we have to make this app anyway. So, um, we could, if we did it in a way that make, and so we'd say, well, the data that sits in the app, why not just make that public? We will provide you with a free API. You don't need to deal with the cost implications of setting up your own API for your own data. We'll do that for you. Mm -hmm. And then they've got their mobile app on the data. But then because the data was already available, you know, suddenly dozens more apps would then be built on their data, creating more value, creating more opportunities. And in one particular case, creating huge amount of efficiencies because the regulated community that they dealt with started using the open data rather than Google yeah. to figure out what the, what the um, information they needed to regulate was. So what we found was one department actually used their freedom of information requests for data from journalists and started proactively publishing the data requests, the common data requests they got, mm -hmm. which both um, made it easier and quicker to get the data to the journalist and to the requester. But by making it publicly available, it also created a check and balance for if a person was just trying to, you know, um, uh, take a spin on the story because they would have to, you know, quote yeah. where it came from. So that was good. So I guess the point is that the, I've got a theory that I call natural motivation. You have to create systems that align to, um, and if not aligned to, then then create a natural motivation for any change to stick. Um, if your change requires incentivizing people, then it's only going to last as long as the incentive. If your change yeah. builds on natural motivation, then they will be naturally motivated. So that's how we went from zero to 
I think 15 or 20 agencies within just a year and a half were, you know, doing their own publishing for their own reasons. And then that created that internal demand and capacity and supply all at the same time. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I asked about the open data stuff because a couple of years I was tinkering with oh, open cool. data apps and um, I, it was to facilitate a need. So my child, when she was a baby, needed to get changed. So <laughs> nappy changes out in public was a pain. So I started looking up ways of figuring out how to find <laughs> toilets in public facilities with change table options. And I found open data stuff went, wow, okay. So I started looking into toilet data <laughs> across the country and around the world. So much interesting information. Um, <laughs> so much that I learned about maintaining public toilets that I never thought I would ever need to know. But um, yeah, so I, I found all this really cool stuff. And there was this, you could tell that there was this stretch of where, you know, people were super interested in open data and, you know, everything was kept up to date over a very short period. And then it just sort of petered off. And, you know, so some of the data that I had was several years out of date. There mm. were facilities that had already closed. They were, you know, they were ones that were actually poorly maintained and just mm. weren't safe to use anymore. And it was just interesting, like you said, that you need to create that natural motivation for people to want to keep providing the information, yeah. to update the information and to use the information. And especially in the UK, like there was, you can tell that there was a specific couple of years where all of the boroughs were like, yeah, we're totally going to update everything. And then suddenly nothing, mm. and there's just no data. And if you look at other information, like all of the facilities, like there might be only one public toilet left when there were like two dozen. Yep. So yeah, it, it's interesting hearing you talk about the fact that, you know, we do need to create that continuous momentum to keep people interested and to keep people wanting to know this information, to access it. For sure. Yeah. Well, it was actually part of the reason why I kicked off GovHack as well. Right. So. GovHack ran as a first standalone event as part of the Gov2O um, task force in 20... 2009, I think, 2010. And by 2012, when I was running DataGovAU, there were heaps of hackathons starting to, starting to happen across the country, but most of them were really terrible. <laughs> most of them were very, really corporate and they were really, you know, you have to sign an NDA to go in. Um, we saw one particularly famous example where a department ran a hackathon and then I won't name the department, but then they, but it was one of the states and they, um, and they then sued a developer after the hackathon had finished for copyright infringement, for accessing the data that was available to the hackathon. Right. It was just like, what? Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not how that works. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Yeah. So I realized that what we needed was, um, that like there were a couple of things. So I realized I could see my people, I could see my community, I could see geeks. Uh, disengaging from hackathons in disgust and being um, mm -hmm. becoming very wary of hackathons, completely understandably so. So I wanted to create just a community one, one that was you know run by hackers for hackers that um, mm -hmm. exemplified kind of the culture and the community, both as a means of um, uh, creating a, um, a safe and a collegial and a collaborative and a community place for people to to um, to do civic hacking. It also um, um, would then raise the bar for people's expectations of hackathons. Um, yep. and it would also then put a pulse because like nothing can live unless it's got a pulse. Right. So if we wanted to see open data continuing to grow, having a annual pulse <laughs> that gave agencies a reason to launch some open data by this date in order to get mm -hmm. this benefit meant that it wasn't something that uh, a can that just get kicked down the road. 
Uh, it provided yeah. a reason for them to publish every every year on top of that natural motivation. So it, it was a huge deal. Like the first, um, and, you know, when we contacted the original Gunpack people and said, you know, can we use the name? Um, the first one was run by a small group of people um, and we had two nodes in the first one, 180 for the first one and then like 800 the second one and 1300 the third one. Like it just grew ridiculously and then became this national yeah. and then an international thing, which is really cool and huge props to all the people that have been doing it over the last few years because, uh, um, you know, it was, it was, it, it's, it's this amazing thing now. Um, but the reason it started was partly a community in- imperative, but partly, partly to create some of that natural motivation. Yeah, definitely. And it's great to see that that initiative has just taken off and that people actually becoming more interested in, you know, what the government's doing, what's available to us, what we can find out. Yeah. And, and it gives people that, you know, that, sort of nudge towards, um, um, uh, what's the word? Democratic participation shouldn't just be about yeah. the ballot box. It should be the day-to-day. Yes. It should be the, actually, I want to be involved in services. I want to be involved in policy. I want to be involved in understanding and shaping the things that mm-hmm. are going to affect me and my family and my community. And um, yeah. so giving people that kind of demand is very, very helpful. Um, but at the same time, GovHack isn't, because it's a community thing. I mean, I've had so many people reach out to me over the years and say, oh, I met my husband or wife or, or partner <laughs> at GovHack. And, uh, and that's just so cool. You know, people found their, their people. They found a place that they could feel comfortable and normal and valued and all that. So, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it is awesome. I can hear a bit of a rain. Oh, is it rain on your side, is it? Nah. Yes, it okay. is rain on my side. Yes, I'm going to have to figure out how to edit that up. (laughs) Good luck. Oh, yeah, learning so much about that kind of stuff. So it's it's clear to see the interest in politics and how that's important to you in order to be able to affect change. But is that what motivated you to actually study politics at a tertiary level as well? Hmm. So as I mentioned before, the the journey from post-school was um, a, a bit of a, a curved path for me. I sort of tried a few different things. I, I tried Chinese medicine, I tried physics, I tried like a bunch of stuff. Um, and I ended up with yeah. several, I ended up with a couple of years of study that were a mixed bag and I didn't actually finish my degree at the time. And I explicitly, this is gonna sound strange to some of your folk and I know that, um, I know some <laughs> people won't like this, but I explicitly didn't want to do a degree in uh, in IT, in computer science, because I could see that it was shaping particular ways of thinking and I wanted my brain to be shaped in multiple different ways of thinking. So um, I ended up, when I ended up working for the senator, um, she was actually the one that encouraged me to finish my, my studies. She was the one that said, um, I know that you want to go, because like, at that stage I'd figured out I need to go work in the public service. She said, if you want to work in the public service, you need to finish your studies because it's one of the things they look for. And I, I just, which I, you know, thought was really stupid, but, um, <laughs> but I went back. So I basically said, well, I've still, I've got a couple of years already up my sleeve from before. What can I do to finish my degree? So I ended up completing my degree in um, public policy and, and, and administration because I wanted to understand that system. And if you want to affect change, you've got to be able to speak the language. You've got to be able to engage with people where they are. So learning about, for instance, the policy life cycle and how policy people are trained gave me a better chance of them being able to engage with policy people in, in, a, in, a, in an understanding way. 
So, um, yeah, so that's why I finished those studies in that. Uh, but it also gave me a really well-rounded um, uh, <laughs> uh, education because my degree ended up being not just across of those early things, but I did a bit yeah. of stats, I did a bit of public policy. Absolutely, I did a bunch of critical thinking. And things that you can learn at university or at any institution are, you know, can be really helpful. But if you just go in to get the degree and get out, then you're kind mm. of missing that opportunity to expand your mind. And I explicitly yes. wanted my studies to be about expanding uh, my mind. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's it's wonderful that you did take that opportunity to do that because, you know, you say that, you know, some of the people I've spoken to may not be too happy with this, but a lot of them have actually found that the broader experiences, the broader range of things that they're learning have actually been beneficial and have informed the way that they do approach their work now in these fields. And, you know, you it comes up so often that we do need to be more you know, open to critical thinking about the yeah. ethics and about the way that we approach things and why we're approaching them and to what end. And I think if everyone could learn critical thinking, like for me that there's a couple of key things in life that, that everyone should learn and they should learn at school, not, you know, having to wait. We should learn critical thinking, but we should also learn self-awareness because there's a lot of people that learn critical thinking, but critical thinking without self-awareness is kind of like a loaded gun that can be shot in any direction um, because the human brain is so amazing at being able to rationalize any perspective. <laughs> so if you lose, <laughs> if you lose self-awareness, if you lose that humility and empathy to a different perspective, and if you lose sight of your own blindness and your own um, blind spots, as it were, then yeah, your, your intelligence can actually be a, a weapon for the wrong outcome. Yes, absolutely. And you, like we're seeing more and off, more often now, you know, just in the world around us, how all of that kind of attitude and the way yeah. that we do weaponize our thinking can be such a huge detriment to, you know, any kind of progress, mm. any kind of development in society or in whatever advancements that you need to make. For sure. When I was in the senator's office, because we get, because all politicians get lobbied all the time, from, I mean, I don't believe that left and right actually exists anymore. I think most people want to have a decent quality of life for themselves, want to see the economy do okay because they understand that there's a correlation between their quality of life and the economy, but they also want the environment to not be trashed. So everyone's kind of sitting somewhere in the middle of a spectrum. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we saw like letters from the hard left and the hard right all the time. And it was really interesting how similar they were. Um, the people who were like, you know, like particularly around something as contentious as the internet filter, which I was right in the middle of, cause my, like, I obviously disagreed yes. with it cause it's stupid. Um, my boss yeah, disagreed with it. Amazing. Well, she, and like the thing is her party were like, here's our policy. And she came out publicly and said, as someone who was, the, I was the shadow minister of it and I came out against this, my reasons haven't changed. So tell me what you think. So we had like thousands and thousands <laughs> and thousands of people write to us, but it was really interesting because we had people, some people are like, well, of course we have to do internet filtering because, and they give all the reasons that were not particularly, like you could debunk the logic of one and they just move to the next one. But the same was yeah. happening on the other side. Well, we absolutely shouldn't have an internet filter because, and, and, and neither were actually engaging in a logical conversation. Like, and I'm not saying like everyone, I'm saying like the extremes. So it was a really interesting realization that a lot of people are like, well, Richard Dawkins is a scientist and I really like him and therefore everything he says is true. No, <laughs> like, don't, don't blindly believe anyone. Apply your own critical thinking and realize that there are good 
Uh, like there are there are valid and invalid perspectives that can be delivered nicely or not nicely by people that you either like or dislike. And getting yeah. a valid perspective from someone you dislike delivered not nicely is actually better than something that is delivered nicely from someone you like, but it's invalid. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that would have been such an, like, it would have been such an incredible time to be in that space because <laughs> like, like nightmarish, but and fascinating because yeah. yeah, I remember that period and it was so divisive yeah. and you know, there were a lot of really invalid arguments everywhere from both sides. And yeah. it's like, but, you know, we, we kind of need to think about, you know, the kind of greater scope of this. It's not just, you know, about some of those little hot button trigger issues that a lot of people kept bringing out. It's like, there's a bit more to it than that. Yeah. And, you know, people forgot about the freedoms, the liberties, the, you know, basically what it means to be human in society when we're talking about all that kind of thing as well. So yeah, that would be amazing. Well, this is, this is where it gets interesting. So I, I dream of a future, like let, let's talk tech for a second. I, yeah. we, have, we have all these fabulous emerging tech all the time, right? And, mm -hmm. um, but because our basic system is based on and, um, and rewarding of, and like in many cases, an almost purely economic, purely financial motivator, and like even things like quality of life get broken down to financial metrics and measures. Mm -hmm. When you measure everything financially, then your systems, your bots, your AI <laughs> um, will, will always value money over people. Yes. So if we actually want a future, and I do dream of a very optimistic future where you know, people do what people do best and machines do what machines do best, um, but we don't mm -hmm. just use, see them as interchangeable. If we want a genuinely good future for people, we need to design our systems um, at, at all levels from, from government and legislation and, and, um, and what we value <laughs> down <laughs> in, in, in human terms. Because if you create a system that values human outcomes and values quality of life and values a environment where people can thrive, then even, even a bot even a bot that was been programmed for a nefarious reason and even a sociopath, yeah. you know, if you want to be talking about humans. So bots and sociopaths behave basically the same. Um, <laughs> they do. They, they respond to they the do. reward system around them. Yes, so exactly. If you reward behaviors that create quality life for humans, then even bad things will adapt to that success. So the reason we yes. get like really awful things like, um, you know, Peppa Pig, what was it? Peppa Pig uh, snuff videos is because, you know, bots were created to try to game YouTube to try to get a uh, financial imperative, you know, yeah. it, it's Hit, hits and monetization. That's where it's all coming from. Totally. But if the measure of um, the, I don't know, the learning outcomes or the, um, the long-term implications of kids spending too much time on videos or whatever, um, like it, it, when you actually measure those things, and that's where the wellbeing framework in New Zealand and the happiness index in Nepal and those kinds of frameworks are starting to become more important than ever because um, mm -hmm. AI and computers dramatically accelerate whatever systems and motivators we have in place. And if we don't dramatically, if we don't reset those things to be human centered, then we're going to dramatically um, accelerate uh, systems that value um, that, that devalue human outcomes. And, you know, just, reading about your optimistic future and talking oh. about it now yeah it, it's yeah it, it 
takes a lot of food for thought and there's a lot of moving parts to trying to get to that future. And I mean, recently you wrote about, you know, trust, truth, and authenticity as well. Just talking about, you know, what's been happening. So with everything that's been going on the last couple of years, how has that had an impact on your vision or has it? Oh, geez, you've got good questions. <laughs> no, they're really, really good. Um, so it's actually only strengthened the vision. So the, the fact is that the number one starting point, this is the big realization I had a few years back. The number one starting point is that people can't change to what they can't imagine. So while ever you don't dream of an optimistic future, while ever you don't reimagine what good looks like for you, for your organization, for your country, for the world, if you don't have a picture in your mind of what good looks like, then you're just scrambling around in the dark. You are at best iterating on the status quo. And I think we all know now the status quo isn't working. It hasn't worked for a while. So what COVID did was it, it did something quite profound. Um, it, governments all around the world used the levers that they had at their disposal and just applied all the pressure that they had to those levers. But the problem is that all of those levers were baked in the industrial age. And so they're trying to throw industrial levers at a digital age. Um, the, the amount of change and complexity facing us um, globally is um, exponentially growing in, in terms of complexity, in terms of speed, in terms of um, need. Um, and yet people, governments in particular, throw linear um, responses at an exponentially growing problem space. And, and what's emerging then is a exponentially growing difference um, delta. <laughs> to, if you know, well, that's a terrible joke right now, I guess. <laughs> I won't use that joke. Um, but you're getting an exponentially growing difference between um, the problem space, the actual need, and the capacity for the system to, to um, meet that need. So, um, so COVID, you know, absolutely exposed the, um, the limitations of the system, uh, the limitations on the, um, on, on the ability for the system to respond to change and to, and to build resilient and, and responsive um, outcomes for humans. At the same time, and because of that, it created a massive demand for change. So there is a massive global, oh my God, we need to change things because we're going into a, um, you know, into a, um, um, rolling emergencies moving forward, whether they're health, environmental, economic, or whatever, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so it's it, so at the same time as just pushing on all the same levers, it also created this demand, massive demand for change. But um, but then all the resources were taken up on on the just pushing on the existing <laughs> levers. But that paradox is really good. So what I'm seeing is two different responses globally. There's a lot of countries who are saying. Return to the status quo is neither feasible nor desirable, which is a, a direct quote from the Minister for Homelessness from Pakistan, who made you know, a really good case about how the status quo had failed the system and they needed to actually directly shift the status quo. So not just massive policy reform, but reforming the system and structures itself. And then you've got other countries, and unfortunately Australia's in this category, who are persisting on when do we get to return to the normal. And, and even all the messaging to the public is, oh, don't worry, we'll get back to normal soon. The, the, the political and public and national narrative needs to be, how do we get to a better normal? How do we get to a, 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 a new normal that is um, resilient and responsive and actually puts people at the heart of the system and values uh, their quality of life? 
So for me, um, my vision for good has always been about, um, you know, how to create um, everything that people and communities need to thrive, uh, to maintain and to value diversity and to ensure that, um, that there is, you know, fairness and justice and um, transparency and trust uh, in a world which otherwise, um, you know, creates a lot of, of chaos and a lot of challenges for people, particularly when they're at their most vulnerable. Yes. Um, which also means proactively engaging with and addressing power differential because governments have the capacity to serve everyone and support everyone, at least in countries where governments are meant to do that. There are certainly countries where governments are just awful um, and, and, you know, and, and absolute um, inhibitors on people and, and um, devalues of people. But if you set up government right um, to be an enabler of good, then um, and if it and to do so, it has to be values driven. It has to be accountable to people, and it has to be uh, something that the public can participate in. Not just participate in at the voting booth, but participate in policy and services and oversight and and all of that. Then um, you you have a chance of um, of being able to overcome those inequities in society. Because uh, for me, good future is a is a highly equitable society. That's not everyone's good. For some people, good is being able to make a billion bucks, right? Um, but for me, that's not my value system. And I think for Australia, that real question of what what does good look like, need you know, people need to make the space to do that. And because everyone's so yeah. busy day to day, and COVID really was the first time for a lot of people where they were forced to take a break from the norm, I think that it's created this, not just a demand in institutions, but a demand by the public for things should be better than this life should be better than this and um, that yeah. gives me a lot of hope actually absolutely so what do we need to do to kind of make that happen so i saw a, a really interesting study um years ago which is one of the influences on my <laughs> life and it, and it was such a small thing at the time but it really really um made me reconsider a lot of things and the study was that it takes somewhere between, I think it was 10 to 15%, maybe up to 20, 10 to 15% of any population to change its mind and behaviors for a revolution to happen. Yeah. Um, it's not a big number. <laughs> no, um, it's not. <laughs> and so I, I would suggest that for, um, particularly for the, the tech community and the geek community and the, um, and that involves, you know, not just techies and data and just, you know, all of our people, like the whole steam gamut, right? Um, if that community, which is big and a lot more influential than it knows, um, can dream big and can use its um, privilege to reach out and to engage people, citizens, communities, um, people who have dealt with power imbalance for generations and draw them into our world and draw them into the, you know, this world, and empower and support them to live well, but also grow and and help facilitate and contribute to the shaping of what good could look like, that will change behaviors towards something away from pessimism and damage control, which is what a lot of people mm -hmm. get so focused on because it's a lot of people are just, well, here's a problem, how do I just solve it? But they're just playing whack-a-mole yep. with a exponentially growing number of problems, right? If people can shift to what's the light on the hill then every step you take is naturally towards something better, not just side skipping yes. or running on a treadmill.
if, if everyone had just that vision in their head of good, and it doesn't mean that everyone's good will be the same, but just mm. having that vision and then having the self-awareness and not just the IQ and the EQ, but the AQ, the agility quotient or whatever it is, um, the ability to be responsive and, and resilient, if people can, um, if everyone could, even just in their day-to-day work, understand their privilege and their perspectives and their um, and, and their bubble, reach outside of that bubble and engage yes. people in that broader what does good look like for us and, and, and be more focused on community rather than just individual, then um, yeah, we, can, we can create these lights on the hill to walk towards and actually hold each other's hand to get there. Absolutely. And we are starting to see that now, I think, a little bit more than we used to, just in the way that you know, all the tipping points, all the various, I guess, you know, subgroups and subcultures and all the other you know, minorities who are starting to be more vocal and speak up more, and they're actually starting to develop stronger communities yep. around you know, what, what their lights on the hill are. And you know, it's, you're starting to see people starting to move towards that, which I guess hopefully leads to that optimistic future. I think also the, the final thing I'd say then is um, I've been really influenced, I have to say, like extremely influenced by being a little bit brave to engage with um, old and different knowledge systems. So mm-hmm. um, just understanding that the knowledge system that you were brought up with is not the only one <laughs> and, and trying to step outside of that and understanding different knowledge systems for for the value that they bring can be really helpful. And mm-hmm. a really good first step to that is just, and particularly in Australian context, just connecting to country, yeah. just understanding, respecting, um, and really trying to get a different knowledge system, which isn't just about putting you know people first. And like you know, we have a lot of language, particularly in um, in our world around you know user centric and people centric and whatever. But, um, but there are different knowledge systems where people are just part of something much bigger. <laughs> um, yes. The, the, what I've found is that both in Australia and New Zealand, um, when you look at either, either um, Aboriginal knowledge systems from different cultures across the country or Māori knowledge systems in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, there's whole different ways of thinking that can actually um, both be um, really instructive and really useful, but also just gives you a point of reference to what are the limitations of my own way of thinking. Um, So for instance, um, the way that I was brought up um, and the knowledge system that I was sort of cooked in is, um, and Western knowledge systems generally, are really just focused on the now. And what did I do yesterday? What am I doing tomorrow? You know, at best a planning maybe a year out or a couple of months out or a couple of years out. But our, our knowledge, like my knowledge system is really terrible at understanding deep history and deep future simultaneously with the present. So I had to learn that. Yes. And I'm not even great at it yet, but I'm, you know, better at it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so good is also about engaging with and understanding different knowledge systems and learning what we can from and um, being respectful to these really old knowledge systems. Like, I mean, Aboriginal knowledge systems in Australia are, you know, tens of thousands of years old. It, it's extraordinary. Um, and there's so much we can learn. And yet it's quite often treated as this thing to be aware of or, um, yep. It's a novelty. Yeah, well, it's treated as a novelty when it's actually a really serious um, um, opportunity to respect and engage and reflect (laughs) differently and actually act in a different way. So it's, it's, yeah, I think there's something quite substantial there. So we think about the STEAM, we don't 
um, that that engagement to different cultures and to cultural awareness and cultural learning and, and intercultural um, um, design and intercultural art and, and tech and all the rest of it isn't covered explicitly by this framework, but maybe it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all about expanding, you know, the way that you can think that you're yeah, your knowledge systems and you know it's all part of the whole critical thinking thing you need to be able to have a broader base to work from in order to be able to think more critically mm. lots of heavy thought there <laughs> well i mean i was really inspired by um some really good work happening in australia like right now actually around indigenous protocols and artificial intelligence and yes you know and again people sort of see like um like western knowledge is very De, dis, uh, disembodied so you know mm -hmm. you write something down and it's on the internet anyone can go and read it anyone can interpret it how they want anyone can apply it how they want and the problem is that then there's no accountability which is why mm -hmm. people still pick up texts that are really old and apply them even if the actual basis and values underneath them were really corrupt um or wrong <laughs> um yeah and um the interesting thing about embodied knowledge systems like a lot of um, Indigenous knowledge systems around the world, when you go to get knowledge, the person you're getting it from, whether they're an elder or whether they're a gatekeeper of some sort, they are actually assessing you. They are giving you the knowledge that you need at that point in your life, <laughs> um, if, if you're worthy of it, if you've gone through the, the process to get it. Um, and, it, you know, and, and there's a whole bunch of other barriers there as well, right, and appropriate ones too. But then you are accountable to that person about how you apply that. But then the, the knowledge system can actually evolve over time because they're always able to apply the same, like, you know, the same value system, but to a changing context. So what you get one day might be different to what you get 50 years hence or 50 years in the past or 5,000 years or 500,000, you know, or 50,000 yeah, years. Because ago. it has that additional context. It has all of that additional knowledge and application to be able to reform or reevaluate what it's doing. And there's a person as part of that process who can embody the values and adapt it to context. Whereas Western knowledge systems don't do that. Um, so I'll, I'll yeah. give you a link to share with folk who might be interested in that. But Absolutely. I think that this, this is fascinating. Yeah. There's something really interesting there to that, that I'm still learning. I'm very early on my journey, but in Australia, I think people get very scared of engaging with and understanding different knowledge systems and in particular indigenous knowledge systems and particularly engaging with them. Um, uh, Aboriginal communities and knowledge systems and perspective. And um, so my encouragement to people is um, to just be brave and just give it a go and just, <laughs> just, just try to connect the country. Yeah, I was going to say, and it, you know, it absolutely does make sense the way that, you know, you describe the way that the knowledge system works. It is, it is an AI, like it's, well, it's not very artificial. It's actually a real intelligence and just being able to think about how we can apply that to AI and, you know, create, I guess, a more thinking and feeling AI, one that's a bit more adaptable to things with context rather than purely being data-driven. That, that's very interesting. Well, data-driven only ever gives you the status quo. It, it helps yes. you identify a problem or a trend, but it's always limited to, it, it doesn't have context and it doesn't have values. See, values mm -hmm. is the key. If you can actually, and this is where I was talking before about measurement, if you can actually program your AI, if you can create a system measure of good, again, which is based around human outcomes, which are informed by values, <laughs> um, then uh, whatever you've asked your AI to do, 
will have to adapt to that value system. Yeah. So the, the key thing is that we haven't really codified our value system. Um, no. we, we, it's sort of implied and then it's optional. <laughs> and yes. that's why we end up with uh, deeply value-less uh, systems, projects, programs, policies, etc. Mm -hmm. And also it's heavily biased because it's all dependent on whoever it is implementing it. Totally. And, and it's based on a deficit model of any problem we have can be solved through the data that we have, but the data you have is based on the status quo. So you, so that, that shift from being deficit driven to being speculatively driven or being future driven is not just about is, is not as some people interpret about, um, doing um predictive analytics on the data you have <laughs> it's actually about yes. standing right back and saying no 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 no. what does good look like Let, let's not predict the future let's invent the future uh to to very badly yeah. misquote uh, <laughs> someone but um but like and people keep trying to predict the future oh well blockchain's a thing so how do we react to blockchain it's like no no, no. blockchain is just the continuation of a massive paradigm shift away from centralized opaque models into decentralized open models like it's entirely predictable and you can see that model continuing to, to happen. So rather than responding to the thing, respond to the trend. And if the trend's yeah. going in the wrong way for humans, then make a, create a different trend, but you have to create a, a light on the hill. <laughs> otherwise you just, yes, otherwise absolutely. you are. And without the light on the hill, most people, most of the time are put under pressure to literally drive, well, not literally to figuratively drive by looking in the rear vision mirror. That's what data-driven mm -hmm. policies do. You are just yes. looking in the rear vision mirror. You're not looking out the window. You're not looking out the front mirror. You're not looking at the road in front of you. You are, you're covering up your windscreen with black paint. And then you are looking in the rear vision mirror and then trying <coughs> to say, oh, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. Oh, I think I hit something. Oh, um, you have to be looking in the rear vision mirror and out the front and at the GPS to the destination trying to get to in the end of the day if you want yeah. to actually drive safely and effectively. Definitely. Like, yeah, it's all stuff that, you know, people take for granted these days, I think, because they go, oh, we've got all this information. We, we, we know what's happened before. Therefore we should know what happens next. And yeah, it's not about knowing what's happened next. It's about cultivating what happens next. Correct. And that needs to be based in values. Um, so, and the more that techies and, um, you know, the, the more that scientists and techies and artists and all of us, the more that we can get back to and ensure that we are applying our craft in the context of values, the better. Um, because knowledge without values leads to, um, you know, some pretty bad actions, but knowledge with yeah. values, with action, by the way, you can't just have knowledge and values because uh, you have knowledge <laughs> and values, you've got academics, right? Um, no, <laughs> and no shade there. We need academics. We need researchers. We need all of that. <laughs> But you need to take knowledge plus action, um, knowledge plus values plus action, to actually get something meaningful. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely. So, is this what you, is this kind of what you're looking for? <laughs> yeah. Well, because it's all open, like whatever we want to talk about, it is what I'm looking for, and it is talking about how we apply what we do to where we fit in society and what we're here for, and so a lot of people like their function or their purpose or their light is all different and all depends on, you know, their circumstances and their experiences. And, you know, this is all, this is all part of it. So yes, this is absolutely what I was looking for. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I think that to that yeah. point, a lot of, um, 
um, when you don't like, if you imagine your future good, um, if you then continually are testing it and ensuring that it's the right value system and ensuring that it, you know, is, is, um, is broadly good, not just good for you. Um, then you start to think about systems. You start to think, okay, well, there's the private sector, there's the public sector, there's nonprofits, there's the media, there's the government, there's the parliament, like there's these different parts of the system, right? And um, there's the financial sector, there's the global. I think we all know in tech that that we've that globalism isn't just about you know supply chains. It's also about um, the the opportunities and challenges around a, yeah. a global community and global society. Um, but um, but but so starting to think about what role should my organization should my sector play towards that good and is there a gap so for me i actually think that the relationship between government and the academic sector and the science sector has has um needs to be dramatically improved because science and research started to get um, funded almost like a return on investment um approach um, a couple of decades back and what's happened is that gap of actually needing um robust high integrity research has started to get filled by consultancy firms but an academic and a scientist is 100% naturally motivated by what is inherently good. Um, you know, they, they don't care if the answer is yes or no. They just want a high integrity answer. That's the best kind of answer. You don't want an answer that says, find me the evidence um, for this thing that I want to do anyway. You want to say, give me the, you know, find the evidence on what the best outcome is. So that should be a partnership. It should be government um, saying to the sector, um, saying to the research and science sector, um, yes. you tell us what's needed. <laughs> but what's happened is, oh, no, I only want to fund something where, where I can get a return on investment. And that's not how science and research works. So a lot of yes. scientists and researchers have been forced to do research on the side of the desk, which is, which is terrible um, for society. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so trying to think about objectively about what role could each sector play towards that good and then trying to do your part in whatever part of the sector, you know, in whatever sector you're in to help live that ideal is, is I think really important. It absolutely is. We had to finish our conversation a little early, but I really appreciate Pierre taking the time to speak with me today about how a more connected, critically thinking and engaged society can lead to better outcomes for our global futures. To learn more about Pierre and what we discussed in the show or to connect with us, please visit the Steampard website at steampardshow.com. You can also find out more about Pia on Twitter at PSCAndrews and her website pipka.org. That's P-I-P-K-A.org. And I've also linked some of the topics that we discuss in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.